I believe there will always be a link of some kind, a dotted line, we might say, between religion and government. And, and that's easy to explain because government, you know, operates on the basis of policies. Policies are shaped by values and values are shaped by many things such as religion. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Religious freedom is a bitterly contested issue that spills over into political, public, and online spheres. It's an issue that's becoming ever more heated, and neither of the global political polarities is interested in protecting it. While the political left is openly hostile toward traditional religion, the political right seeks to weaponize it. How can we ensure that religious freedom is truly about freedom of one's religion rather than serving an ethno-nationalist agenda? In Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, New Testament scholar and author of Evangelical Theology, Michael Byrd, has four main goals. One, to explain the true nature of secularism and to help us see it as one of the best ways of promoting liberty and mutual respect in a multi-faith world. Two, to dismantle the arguments for limiting religious freedom. Three, to outline a biblical strategy for maintaining a Christian witness in a post-Christian society. And four, to encourage Christians to participate in a new age of apologetics by being prepared to defend not only their own beliefs, but also the freedom of all faiths. While Byrd does address the recent political administrations in the United States, his focus is global. Byrd, who lives in Melbourne, Australia, freely admits to his anxiety of the militant secularism surrounding him. But he also strongly critiques the marriage of national and religious identities that has gained ground in countries like Hungary and Poland. The fact is that religion has a lot to contribute to the common good. Religious freedom in a secular age will challenge readers of all backgrounds and beliefs not only to make room for peaceable difference, but also to find common ground on the values of justice, mercy, and equality. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Michael F. Byrd is an Australian biblical scholar and Anglican priest who writes about the history of early Christianity, theology, and contemporary issues. Mike is academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and he's the author of over 30 books, including Evangelical Theology, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, The Gospel of the Lord, How the Early Church Wrote the Story of Jesus, What Christians Ought to Believe, and with N.T. Wright, The New Testament in Its World. He is also the author of the 2022 book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government, which we'll be discussing today. Michael Byrd, welcome to Acton Line. 
Eric, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you and all of your listeners. So, Michael, I'll just uh, throw this to you to start. Uh, Tell us what your book is about. Uh, My book is about, as the title says, uh, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. How do we advocate the case for religious freedom in a world where religious freedom is undoubtedly under threat in certain parts of the world, more so than others? Obviously, the situation in China is different from the situation in America. How do we advocate for religious freedom when we're having massive debates about LGBTI rights and how that you know, potentially clashes with uh, various religious communities who have their own views of family, marriage, and sexuality? What do we do when there are some predatory versions of secularism where people want to marginalize faith from the public sphere or even from public view? And what should the church's strategy be to, to those kind of things that are happening around the world today? And even though I'm not an expert at law, my background is in biblical studies and theology, I'm certainly concerned that Christians around the world have the freedom to practice their faith without fear of reprisal. And that's that's pretty much why I wrote this book. Why don't you start walking through some of those categories there and what you see as the threats to uh, Christians in terms of practicing their faith in an increasingly secularized world? And what uh, advice do you give in terms of navigating some of those particular problems? I'm, I'm particularly thinking our listeners would be interested in some of the uh, LGBT questions. You know, We can all recount the story of uh, Jack Phillips, the cake baker in Colorado, who uh, on one hand has had his rights vindicated by the court system, uh, but continues to be on the receiving end of litigation uh, for people who just seem to want to come after him. So we could walk through all those categories, but you know, what what is your advice for people who are looking to navigate the modern world? Well, I mean, there's a, a number of things we need to cover. Uh, one thing I'd like to point out is... Uh, There is a religious illiteracy problem, which is in the wider culture, I think more so amongst progressives. They just don't understand what religion is. They just don't understand why people are religious. It's like, why would you want to do that? They don't seem to have a category in their mind. Why would you do that? Uh, But there's also a secular illiteracy problem. And when people say things like, uh, you know, Australia is a secular country, I always respond by saying, no, Australia is a pluralistic country with a secular government. And it's the secularity of our government that enables us to be a fairly successful multicultural liberal democracy. Uh, so that's the, first, that's the kind of first thing you've got to clarify. But also, there's different types of secularism. This is what people don't seem to understand. They seem to think that, there's only, that secularism is one thing. There are different ways of being secular. So, you know, Turkey is, you know, what do you call these days? Turkey is technically a secular country. It's a secular Islamic country. Now, that secular side is eroding a bit uh, under the leadership of uh, their president, Erdogan. But, you know, since the 1920s, it's been a, a secular Islamic country. That's one species of secularism. Then you've got the French version of laicite, which has its own origins in the Third French Republic. Generally, it was created to basically to stop the Catholics taking over and bringing back the Bourbon monarchy, but you know, we'll park that there. Then you've got the British system of secularism, which is, which is very interesting because you've got a, a Church of Scotland and a Church of England. At the moment, you have a nominally Christian king, a Hindu prime minister, a Buddhist home secretary, and a Muslim mayor of London. So even with a 
state-sanctioned church where the state appoints bishops, you know, in, in, in various posts uh, throughout the country, you still have a fair degree of religious freedom, liberalism, and, uh, you know, religious diversity. And then we could talk somewhere about China where you've got the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims all the way through to state-sanctioned and state-run churches and the persecution of the underground church. And you can think of several famous cases there, particularly of reformed pastor Wang Yi. So there's different ways of being secular. Uh, And then the other thing I add to that is that secularism, in its best sense, is a good thing. Because on the one hand, secularism says, you know, we're not going to live in a theocracy. We're not going to replace the president with a pope, Dalai Lama, Ayatollah and chief rabbi and be ruled by a group of clerics. Okay, so that, that so I'm not going to have a theocracy. We're not even going to have a Christian nationalism. We're going to be a land of all faiths and none. Okay, because that, 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 that's what secularism means. But the other side to secularism, and this is what people don't seem to realize, the other side of secularism is that the government doesn't tell you how to do your religion. There's no religious test and no religious exclusion for public office. So the government uh, cannot uh, interfere or take pot shots at you because they don't like your religion. Okay, so that's the, that's the good sense of secularism. But we know that are also more militant and you know, what we might call crusader versions of secularism, where they deliberately want to remove uh, religion from the public sphere and public influence, and it does have a kind of prejudicial side where they just have a pathological hatred of people of faith. So that's kind of the, the, the things I'm trying to unpack in the book and how we talk about religious freedom in that context and how it all comes up into conflicts with LGBT rights and other things. Well, I think that last, uh, the last example you gave points to a, a distinction that I've heard made for years of the difference between freedom of religion and freedom from religion, that you have people who have a freedom we have a freedom of religion, which is the freedom to to practice it, to not practice it, to kind of do as we wish. And the crusading side of it is seeking a freedom from religion that it's expunged from the public square. So I'm curious, how, how do you answer um, some of the critics from, I would say, largely coming from the religious right who say one of the problems with the secularist or secular approach, even in maybe one of its better forms, is that in the public square – there is only that space that is made for things that are secular. All the common ground is based on the secular part of it. And it does – it has led to this crowding out of religion from the public square increasingly over time. So is is it unfair of them to view uh, – the more benign forms of secularism that I think you've described as maybe just being militant secularism, but on a slow roll, uh, that we've kind of gotten to this point where even though we had embraced seemingly that, uh, better idea of secularism, we have had this crowding out of religion and Christianity from the public square throughout that time. Well, I I think some form of secularism is absolutely necessary in a pluralistic context. So if you've got something like the American context, where let's say, you know, between 40 to 60% of people generally still identify as Christian, I mean, up to like 90%, depending on what state or what town you're in, uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, But consider this, okay, if you say, look, we're going to be a Christian country, then you've got the problem of which type of Christianity will be hegemonic, okay? So, you know, unless you want Anglicans to come back to America, uh, forcibly baptizing your children, and telling people you're only allowed to use 
1669 prayer book as the only form of worship. Unless you want to have that, you're going to need some type of religious toleration, and religious toleration requires uh, a, a secular instrument of some kind simply to have religious diversity, even within Christianity. Okay, so unless you're going to simply accept one Christian tradition as hegemonic, you need some degree of secularity. And that's how secularism actually started out. It was basically how we could live together in states with, between Protestants and Catholics without running around and cutting each other's heads off. So that's, that's kind of where that's, that was the origins of secularism. You know, that is a good thing. The other thing I need to point out is, is some misunderstandings. A benign secularism does not mean that religion needs to be eclipsed from the public sphere. It just means there will be limits on its influence and its visibility. I believe there will always be a link of some kind, a dotted line, we might say, between religion and government. And, and that's easy to explain because government, you know, operates on the basis of policies. Policies are shaped by values and values are shaped by many things such as religion. So there's always going to be some type of religious influence on government, but we need to make sure that there are certain checks and safeguards. And to that, I would also add that uh, church and state can cooperate in areas of shared interest. I mean, that's why we have chaplains in the military, chaplains in the police force, chaplains even in state-run hospitals. This is why uh, government often invests money in philanthropic organizations like, you know, um, giving a grant to the Salvation Army to run a, a drug rehab, letter, uh, rehab center using state funds. There are, there are areas where church and state can cooperate. The main concern is we don't want religion or any one religion to become privileged or hegemonic. That's the main thing we're trying to stop uh, when we have a secular framework, because we know that always ends bad. You get one Christian sect attacking other Christian sects or, or basically attacking everyone else um, who's who's not one with them. Uh, but what I want to say to the more um, militant secularists, uh, if you if you really want to go for a hard, you know, real deep separation of church and state and completely stop even that dotted line, from uh, having some connection between religion, values, voters. I mean, the only way you can do that uh, is being um, unsecular. You'd have to go full Monty totalitarian in order to have a a thorough, um, a thoroughly secular country. But that would run over various, you know, you know, uh, liberal freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of association. Um, you know, everyone being enfranchised. You can't say. I need to stop Muslims from voting, commentating, or running for parliament because Muslims hold Muslim beliefs and values. I mean, that that is an illiberal viewpoint. Uh, although I do worry a little bit that there are some versions of secularism that we find propounded in different parts of uh, the world, including your country, the United States, where they do want an illiberal version of secularism. Uh, I remember soon as uh, gay marriage was legalized in the United States, there were calls for uh, for all you know, many charter schools, many uh, religious schools to to lose state accreditations straight away. So if you were out of sync with the wider culture on when on the topics of family, marriage, and secularity, or just out of sync with the uh, uh, the more elite political class, there were calls for punitive action straight away. That punitive those punitive actions is what secularism tries to guard against. It guards government from theocracy 
but it also ta- uh, defends religious minorities from the mob. So we recently published a review of your book in our magazine, Religion and Liberty, that uh, Jordan Baller wrote. And I'm going to read from uh, the opening paragraph there because uh, I want to get your take on something that Jordan uh, wrote here in the introduction. Uh, working from Australia, but with a keen eye on developments elsewhere and particularly in America, Bird's offering provides both a framework for evaluating the contemporary situation as well as a call for Christians to promote the need for religious liberty more responsibly. Um, I wonder if you could dial in on that last part that he's talking about there, because we've we get a lot of arguments. There, are, a lot of them have risen risen here to the level of the Supreme Court, where we have the Supreme Court adjudicating uh, what the meaning of the uh, the First Amendment and free exercise clause and all of that are. Um, but take it out of the legalese. Um, what would your advice be to people who are of faith who want to advance arguments for why uh, we need religious freedom in society? Um, how would you recommend that they go about that again in, in a way that is uh, um, responsible and I think maybe a little less reactionary to the other side that um, I think for many reasons that are fair, they view as on the march. Uh, that's, that's a good question. And uh, speaking particularly into the American context, I would say this. First of all, you've got to distinguish a difference between religious freedom and Christian hegemony and privileges. Uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, in America, uh, the Christian perspective or Judeo-Christian perspectives do enjoy a somewhat uh, privileged and hegemonic position. Okay, and I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon. Although you know you, you could argue it is demographically eroding. Uh, so I think you've got to differentiate between those two things. So when we defend religious freedom, we are defending religious freedom. We're not defending uh, Christian hegemony or having privileged access to the corridors of powers that the Christian view uh, is treated as necessarily the default setting. That, that's, what I t- that's what I mean there. So let's make sure we're defending religious freedom. But what I would want to major on is by saying religious freedom is not one isolated freedom. It is part of an interlocking chain of rights that we have within a, any, any liberal democracy, and particularly the American setup, it's, it's very important, and I think it's been very valued. So if you diminish religious freedom, there will be a knock-on effect. It will also diminish freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of association. And in some cases, you could argue, like the Jack Phillips case in, in Colorado, I would argue that's not just a religious freedom case. That's a that's a freedom of conscience case. Okay, and if and if and if one conscience is not safe from the mob or from government coercion, then nobody's conscience is safe from the mob or government coercion. So I'd want to emphasize the interlocking nature of religious freedom. That any diminishment of religious freedom will also diminish other civil rights, liberties, and freedoms which we were given for uh, a reason. I, I, could, I, could, I could explain a little bit further how I'm concerned about some people are very happy to diminish these, these freedoms. Please. Well, let, let me give you an example from Australia. There was a, a Tongan football player. His name's Israel Folau, Christian guy. Um, he was on Instagram, as football players like to do, uh, and he was asked about um, sexuality, religion, and uh, someone said to me, what would you say to you know, homosexuals? And he said something to the effect that they should repent of their sins or they're going to hell. Okay. Uh, now, that line um, obviously offended a lot of people. 
Um, he believed he was acting very He was asked a genuine question. He gave a genuine answer. Uh, but he was, he was you know, really attacked for it. Had his contract with uh, Rugby Australia cancelled. Okay. And a lot of people saying, yeah, that guy's got to go. You know, we've got to get rid of him. You know, it's, it's terrible that he's been able to say that thing. He needed to be punished for what he said. But then I tell them another story. Now, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but there was a chap in the United Kingdom who worked for a, a supermarket chain called, um, I, think, I, think, I think it was, I think it was uh, Asda, may have been Aldi. I think, I think it was Asda. And this guy was, a, you know, in his 50s, he was a greeter. He used to just greet people, you know, disabled as well. And on his personal face, uh, Facebook page, um, he shared a video of the comedian Billy Colony, uh, Billy Connolly, uh, just you know, just attacking all sorts of religions. You know, using a lot of you know profane language about the Jews, the Muslims, the Protestants, the Catholics. Well, anyway, one of his um, ASDA colleagues saw this video, complained about it, and as a result, the uh, the gentleman in question had to resign. Uh, sorry, not to resign. He had to apologize, and then uh, he was sacked. So he was sacked for sharing this anti-religious video. Now, this is the question I put to my progressive friends. I say, do you believe that Rugby Australia should have sacked Israel Folau for his, you know, his allegedly homophobic statement? And they say yes. But they say, then I say to them, well, what about the guy who worked for ASDA? Because he said something that was very offensive, you know, possibly to, to Muslims. Should he be sacked to what he said? And then they kind of stop and they pause for a moment and they reluctantly realize the logic of their own position and that they say, yes. And my response to that, basically, you're allowing corporations to decide what we're allowed to say on our own social media, you know, profiles. You know, can you can you be sacked for your view of politics, religion or anything? And people are willing to adopt. That's what scares me about the younger generation. They're willing to accept, uh, accept a really illiberal world simply so they can censor their own, um, the people they don't like on the other end of the spectrum. And it's a kind of, you know, burn the village to save the village. We need to diminish our civil rights to make sure the people I don't like have any civil rights. I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's a real crazy perspective. And that, that, that's the bit that worries me, the kind of burn the village to save the village view of civil rights. Uh, because we used to say say things like, you know, I I profoundly disagree with what you say. I mean, I, I find it morally repulsive, but I will defend your right to say it. That's no longer the argument. The argument is I hate what you have to say, and I will literally burn the Bill of Rights to the ground to stop you being able to say it. That I think is the problem. Or they want they want the Bill of Rights to apply to them and their tribe. And they want to. They want no rights for the other tribe. I mean, and, and that can go both ways, left and right. They 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 want the freedom of speech, conscience, and association, but they don't want it for the other side of the ledger. Yeah, I do. I do want to get to that part of it. There was a, another story here in the United States a couple of weeks ago uh, involving the Philadelphia Flyers of the National Hockey League, uh, who were supposed to wear jerseys before their game to promote uh, their celebration of Pride Night. One of their players, Ivan Provorov, a defenseman from Russia who was Russian Orthodox, uh, basically said like he he wasn't going to participate in warmups because he wasn't going to wear the jersey. We and had the same issue in Australia. Same thing we had. Same issue came up in our sport. Coding codes. We had a, 
Uh, yeah, we have a, we have a women's football team, and there was a, a Muslim football player who refused to wear the pride jersey for for one of the rounds of the competition. So she was allowed to sit out, and there was a little bit of a grumbling. But you know, Muslim female scores pretty high on, on an intersectional chart, so you know they give they give her a free pass. But then there was a bunch of um, uh, Islander, you know, Tongan Samoan football players at another football club, and they just had this. They they just, they just found out about it one day, and they said, "Well, I'm not wearing it." And then that was a huge furor in the media that, that, you know, they should either be forced to wear it or they should be sacked. And that led to a whole bunch of debates. And it was funny because you had a whole bunch of white elites condemning brown skin football players for refusing to offer a token act of obedience to what is effectively something of a civil religion. Yeah, that that is certainly a more complicated story than the the Provorov one, but you, you had similar follow-ons to that of the, the New York Rangers of the National Hockey League canceling really their celebration of Pride Night in response to all of that. But like the question for me being kind of like, well, what, you know, what do you want from people like Ivan Provorov, right? So like he's not saying, he's not even advancing necessarily a, uh, a viewpoint similar to the Australian football player that you highlighted. He's just saying, I'm not going to participate in this. And the the response seems to be, well, we need to get a harumph from you in favor of this agenda item. Um, th- that is the that's the important part of the uh, the clarion call here. Uh, so we we need to get people to join in. It's like the the Eric Erickson phrase from years ago about um, uh, gay marriage, like you will be made to care. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's and that's. You know, political progressivism does become a little bit of a civil religion, and I I do find it fearful that they want token acts of obedience, and I don't believe anyone should be forced to do any token act of obedience. Either that's whether whether that's you know to a religion, uh, no one should be coerced to say the Lord's Prayer or, or, or things like that. Just as no one should be coerced to wear a you know pride flag, uh, but that's that's you know you know I mean that's not new, but. In the ancient world, you know, Christians were forced to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor, you know, to his image, to demonstrate that they were loyal subjects of the empire. Or, you know, business owners forced to put a, you know, communist flag in the window of their shop, you know, with a sign saying, workers unite, to show that they're loyal to the cause. Uh, you know, many uh, totalitarian regimes can often demand token acts of obedience. And when people demand our token acts of obedience, what we should offer them is nothing more than our unmitigated defiance. And the greatest defiance we have is our faith, our confessions, and our creeds. So we've talked, I think, a good amount about the threat from the left. Uh, what do you see as the threat from the right? So you know, here in the United States, we've had a lot of conversation in the last uh, year or two about Christian nationalism, how significant this really is. Um, you know, what do you see as the threat developing uh, to the good form of, of secularism coming from the yeah. right? Yeah, I should say I'm also very grateful for Jordan's uh, review. That was that was very kind, very generous. I thought I also felt it was very accurate, and he had some reason. He had some reason thoughts. Uh, this is the bit where people say to me, Mike, I was with you, you know, in your critique of, you know, crusader secularism. I mean, I like your critique of militant secularism, but you know, what what what's all this with you kind of you know attacking the religious right and everything? I mean, certain. Certain friends tend to check out at this point. But no, I, I believe there is a danger, a threat to benign or good secularism 
from the uh, re- from the religious right or the conservative side of politics. And I am concerned a lot with some of the rhetoric, uh, some of the promotion of things like Christian nationalism. And some seem to like the idea of, of saying, you know, what we really need is a kind of political messiah, you know, a, a new messiah who will vanquish our enemies, you know, these woke corporations, you know, Disney and transgenderism. We want someone to really go on the attack and, 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 and you know, make Christianity great again. Make Christianity not just legal and tolerable, but make it hegemonic. Make it the law of the land, something along those lines with endless variations. Uh, to which I say that is a bad idea because it always ends badly. You know, we, we've done this. You know, we don't want to go back to the re-Constantinization of our society. You know, separation of church and state is good for churches, mosques, synagogues, and it's also good for the state. Okay, so we don't we don't want to go that direction because it leads to a nominal Christianity. It leads to shallow discipleship, people just being religious in the sense of wanting to be good citizens. Citizens, where citizenship then simply becomes expressed as a form of, of, of religious piety, but it's a pseudo-piety. It leads to a false discipleship. So I, I don't think that's a good idea. And to be honest, I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather be a minority fighting against the bad guys than us to become the bad guys and trying to push our religion and force people who don't have Christian beliefs and values to adhere to them. Uh, I don't think that's going to end necessarily well. I think I think we should respect the uh, the Christian roots of our civilization, and we are. I mean, America, Australia, Britain, we do stand in the Christian tradition. I mean, I mean, Tom Holland, his work Dominion shows this amazingly. You know, we've all we've all internalized the Christian revolution, whether we're talking about feminism or, or trans rights. These are ultimately in-house debates amongst a Christian civilization of how we manage differences within diversity. And some people want to manage that a little bit differently. But even the diehard secularists, if they believe in things like human rights, these things are born of the Christian tradition. They did not come from Darwin. They did not come from the French Revolution. These are things that have been birthed out out of a specific worldview, a type of culture that's been soaked and pervaded by none other than Jesus of Nazareth. We've commented a lot on the United States. You've also talked a lot about uh, Australia, where you're uh, talking to us from uh, today. I, I want to look at two other countries in Europe and have you comment on, on what you're seeing develop there as well. And uh, those nations are Hungary and Poland. Um, I think we hear those, particularly Hungary these days, being pointed to as this kind of great example for the political right in the United States. That uh, you know the the model set up by Viktor Orban um, is one that we should be looking to emulate or that the people on the right should be looking to emulate. Um, describe what has been going on there and then what you see as the uh, the threats or the danger of what uh, you see developing in those countries. Yeah. Uh, Poland and Hungary have been pilloried a lot uh, within the European Union. And yeah, I, I don't mind a bit of, I don't mind a bit of Europe. I like my French cheese. Uh, I love Athens. You know, I, I was, I was born in Germany, you know, I was, a, but you know, despite that, I, believe in the resurrection. Uh, I was born in Germany. I'm a, I'm a dual British Australian citizen. So I love Europe. I, you know, I always watch Eurovision. But to be perfectly honest, sometimes the European Union looks like um, l- looks and acts like a shell company for a Bond villain, um, to be perfectly frank sometimes. 
uh, and they've certainly attacked Poland and Hungary as countries who are not willing to toe the more progressive line and come into a somewhat more, dare I say, uh, nihilistic view of secularism. Uh, and I, I do worry a little bit like about the European Union. They want people to be loyal to Europe in general, but nowhere in particular. And they don't like any people being more excited about their country than they are for the European project. And uh, I remember when Guy Verhofstadt told the Liberal Democrats in the UK, he said, we must become a European empire. Now, if you translate that into German, it's, we mustn ein Europäischer Reich schaffen. You know, and that's the word Reich there for empire. Now, I don't have a degree in political science, Eric, but if anyone's got a plan for Europe that involves the word Reich, I can tell you now, <laughs> a very, very bad idea. Probably going to raise some alarm bells, yeah. It should raise a lot of a, you know, we must become a European Reich. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't end well. Been there, done that. Yeah. I saw, I saw, saw the movie. Saw the movie many times, go. yeah. Yeah, I saw, saw many movies, but John Wayne uh, did not go well. So that there is this sort of, you know, somewhat, how can I put it, a, a kind of soft, I don't use the word woke, because I think that word is misused and, and it's, it's just a just a wolf whistle, but there is this sort of, you know, progressive authoritarianism and Poland and Hungary are bucking at it because they've both got, um, they've both got histories of standing up for faith against communism and that they don't like it when people knuckle down on them because of their, of their, of their love of family, faith and values. And I, I, I understand how Poland and Hungary uh, are very concerned that they're getting just a kind of a, a softer version of what they had under communism some 30 or 40 years ago. Now, let me be clear. I am not necessarily defending every single policy of the Polish and the Hungarian uh, governments. Uh, there have been some genuine concerns in Hungary about freedom of the press and you know, banding things like you know, gender studies and the like. Uh, I certainly believe Poland and uh, Hungary are entitled to have their own, their own, their own their own faith values, their own freedom of religion, and to have their own sovereignty immune from European interference. I, I certainly recognize that, and I'm happy to see them stand up to some of the European technocrats. Uh, but I don't want to give them the carte blanche. I, but there, there's been a big change recently. H Hungary still gets a lot, lot of negative press, as if it's some kind of proto-fascist state, uh, but Poland does. And it's interesting, Pol in the Ukraine crisis, Poland has very clearly sided against Russia and they've sided with Ukraine. And in fact, uh, I, you could argue that Poland is really now the sharp end of NATO stick. Okay. So the, the Poles have clearly acquitted themselves. And I think it's, it's wonderful that early in his presidency, I believe President Trump gave a fantastic speech uh, in Poland about political freedom. I'm, and let me say, I'm, I am not a Trump fan by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt like Trump's speech in Poland about political freedom was very good. And the Poles are now the sharp end of NATO's spear. And I think they understand what they're fighting for. They're fighting for freedom. They're fighting for the right of nation, national sovereignty, the right to, to self-determination. Uh, and they're doing that, I think, out of values that have been formed by the Christian tradition. Um, Hungary's had a slightly different uh, response. They're a little bit more, I understand, or maybe very sympathetic to Russia. Now, maybe that's part because they don't want to walk into World War Three. They want to, you know, have a more equitable whatever. Yep. Now, I'm a little, I, I'm more with Poland than I am with Hungary, but I understand that different countries are trying to come to different solutions on how to resolve the, the, um, the conflict in Ukraine and the, I mean, to be frank, plain Russian ag aggression against Ukraine.
Um, so, I, I mean, that, that, that's how I see the situation. They're kind of trying to uh, stand up against the European technocrats. And within, within certain uh, constraints, I, I think we could say that's a good thing to do. But I don't know if I'd be using any of them as the model of what we need to take forth. I know uh, Rod Rare is definitely a, a, a Hagrain, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, a magophile. I mean, Magyar is the language of Hungary. So I know Rod Rare is, is definitely, you know, he's a conservative journalist. He loves Hungary and everything it stands for. Uh, I've been to Hungary, great place. I love Budapest. Um, but I'm not too sure I'm going to use that as the model for what we should like, like going forth. But our other political commentators will have some ideas on that one. We're going to quote a line, another line here from Jordan's uh, review. Uh, Bird reminds Christians that a faithful response to an increasingly aggressive and hostile secularism is not an equally virulent and pugnacious Christianism. Uh, what what would you recommend as the response uh, from people that are inclined towards that side who see people advocating for some form of Christian nationalism that is going to uh, do what I think you're making a very good distinction there, which is the um, – I think I've also heard David French make this distinction that um, – Religious liberty has never been greater, at least in the United States, than it is right now. But Christian power has probably never been lower than it is right now. It has ceased to be that kind of hegemonic force, um, even if it wasn't one necessarily by design. It was definitely one in practice. Um, so for people who are looking at that decline, who are concerned about it, who are hearing these advocates for, you know, we need to punch back twice as hard. This is kind of the whole political ethos of the last uh, eight years of American political life that we've lived through. Uh, when someone hits you, you hit back just as hard, which is a pretty explicitly anti-Christian message being in, in all honesty. What is your recommendation? You know, what? how should uh, people of faith – um, who feel kind of beset by these forces, how should they respond to it without turning to that kind of, as Jordan described, uh, equally virulent and pugnacious Christianism? Yeah, I, I don't think we have to put all our eggs in the basket of hoping for a political messiah who will, you know, vanquish our enemies. Yeah, I mean, it's good if you get a Christian leader um, or someone of a real authentic faith elected to public office. I think that's always good. But, you know, Martin Luther said he'd rather be ruled by a, a wise Turk than a foolish Christian. I think we've got to remember that. So, But if we, if we are becoming a demographic minority, uh, if there are some cultural forces which are opposed against us, uh, what I call our, I think our strategy should be what, what I call the Thessalonian strategy. You know, when, when Paul and his co-workers came to Thessalonica, they had a reputation for turning the world upside down. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to turn the world upside down because I think the Christian message is, is still undoubtedly beautiful and amazing, but it is disruptive. It is revolutionary, okay? And I think if we promote that, preach that, and practice that, that will lead to the changing of the world. You know, because I think ultimately, you know, what we want is to love God and love our neighbors, live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, promote his, his, his teaching, his message, and imitate him. And if we do that individually as, a, as, a, as various communities of faith and churches around the country, I believe that will make a difference. It will make a difference in the schools we found, our own community activism. It'll make a difference in the coalitions we establish between different Christians and even between other different faith groups, because we have to remember an, an attack on the on the religious freedom of Muslims 
is also potentially the same things could be used to attack Jews or to attack Christians. So we have a vested interest in the religious freedom of other minorities. And we've got to show that we're willing to stand up for that. We're willing to, to speak up for the weak and the oppressed. We are, on, we are against all forms of totalitarianism and autocracy, whether they're of the left version, the right version, or the Islamic version. I mean, the world is being realigned uh, of liberal democracies against autocracies. And, and you look at Russia, China, and Iran. They do not have a lot in common. You know, Russia is a mafia state. Iran is, a, uh, is an Islamic extremism. And China is this kind of, you know, um, uh, a kind of, you know, well, it's communist. It's more fascist now, to be honest. But the only thing they have in common is autocracy. And Christians have got to be a light in that world. And we've got to be willing to stand up for others, standing up for ourselves. But I think we're going to do that not by out-hating our enemies, but by showing the values of love, equality, and inclusion in, in, in the best and Christian sense of those terms. And in that, that way, I think we can turn the world upside down. And I think the vision we offer, you know, of, a, of a, as we would say in Australia, a fair go for everyone. Or as it says in the book of Micah, you know, everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid. That is far better image, a far better vision for society than something you get with a kind of quasi-progressive authoritarianism where, you know, J.K. Rowling should be killed and murdered in front of her children. Or lesbians should be forced to date trans women, even if they don't want to. I think the vision we offer of, you know, of a fair go for everyone, everyone can pursue their own happiness and their ideas of worth without fear of reprisal. That vision is ultimately better than a soft or hard authoritarianism, whether it's conservative or progressive. What do you see as threats that uh, are developing to secularism and or religious freedom that uh, people listening to this podcast should really keep their eyes on. We've talked a lot about you know, what has happened so far that is starting to crowd religion out of the sphere. Do you see anything kind of uh, on the horizon that deeply concerns you? Yes. Yes, I do. And Australia is the canary in the coal mine. Let me give you a really good example. Now, Eric, have you ever, ever heard of a guy called Andrew Thorburn? I have not. You have not. Well, let me introduce you. Uh, Andrew Thorburn uh, was a guy who was a CEO of one of Australia's largest banks, National Australia Bank. He sort of retired from that, and he and he eventually got a job as the CEO of a of a football club in Australia, Essendon Football Club. Now he's a Christian guy. He attends. Uh, uh, last time I checked, an Acts twenty nine church. So evangelical guy. Um, you know, and while he was the the president, the the CEO of this bank, they had you know all the regular inclusion, diversity, toleration policies, and he you know, never bucked against anything. Uh, when he was appointed to the role of this football club, it was pointed out he was also on the board of his church, which is an evangelical church, and they hold traditional views of family, marriage, and sexuality. The pastors there have delivered sermons on topics about abortion and same-sex marriage, and this was pointed out. Within 24 hours of Andrew Thorburn being appointed, um, he was given an ultimatum, resign from uh, his job as the football club CEO or resign from his church. Now, the sermons delivered in question were, were delivered before he was even a member of the church, okay? And it was on the basis of nothing he said, nothing he did, but he was asked to resign, okay? This was purely guilt by association, simply on the fact that he is associated with a Christian church with a you know, traditional view of family, marriage, and sexuality, he was asked to resign. 
which which he did, which he did. And there was a huge media uh, pour down on him. Even the, our state governor, various mayors, all kind of pilloried him, saying that this is a deplorable church. A person who belongs to that church has no no place being the CEO of a football club. That really concerns me. Uh, now, as things panned out, um, I think it kind of dawned on people what Essendon Football Club did was in fact highly illegal because you cannot actually, you know sack someone or give them an ultimatum based on their religious association. I mean, that, that violates countless laws, but Essendon Football Club still did it. That is, I think, what we're going to get in the future. You're going to get a whole bunch of um, soft discrimination or maybe even hard discrimination where people will be told you're not entitled to work, not, not entitled to earn a living if you are associated with any of these uh, religious groups. And that is going to be very illiberal. That's going to that's going to be more than an attack on religious freedom. It's more than an attack on secularism. It's an attack on our liberal democracy, where certain mobs will form and just try to attack certain individuals for no other reason other than their association of what their religion is. And that's that's what I'm scared about in the future because I think that's going to become a lot more increasingly common. And that's why I wrote uh, a book like this, because I think to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And we've got to state the case for uh, liberty, equality, and secular government. That is the solution to the somewhat progressive authoritarianism that is out there. Michael F. Byrd is an Australian biblical scholar and Anglican priest who writes about the history of early Christianity, theology, and contemporary issues. He is the author of the 2022 book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government, which we've been discussing today. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today on Acton Line. It is great to speak to you, Eric, and everyone from the Acton Institute, and it's been great to share some time with your listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.